around the year 300 AD, uh, Alexander was a pastor over all of Alexandria there in Egypt. And one day he was in the middle of a, a meeting with other pastors, and it must not have been very interesting to him uh, because his, his attention was actually on a group of boys playing out on the beach close by to where he was meeting there. And as he was watching these boys play out on the beach, Alexander was struck by what he eventually saw. One of the boys began to immerse the other boys in the water. And he did so with the precise words with which Jesus commissioned us to baptize in Matthew 28 in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Alexander was so struck by this that he, he actually, he eventually got up and, and went out to these boys and, and he talked with them for a bit. He commended the, the one boy on his well-knowing, the, the proper and precise details for practicing the tradition of baptism. And then he encouraged each of the boys to consider dedicating their lives to ministry in the church of Christ. And one of the boys, the baptizing one eventually would, his name was Athanasius. And uh, Athanasius, he's be up on the screen here. If we go to the next slide. There we go. There he is. That's his selfie. Uh, Good-looking guy. Uh, Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius, he, he, he ended up becoming Alexander, something of Alexander's protege for a time, and, and he would go on to, uh, to succeed Alexander as the, the pastor over all of Alexandria there in Egypt. And, and as such, Athanasius would actually go on to be one of the most important and influential pastors and theologians in all of Christian history. You see, as Athanasius was, was coming up and while he was a pastor, the church was having the fight of her life over belief concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Another well-known and influential theologian had arisen during that time named Arius. Arius. And Arius believed and taught that Jesus is not true God. Instead, Arius believed and taught a heresy we've, all, we've come to call Arianism after his name. It's not associated with, with the Nazis. But, but Arianism taught that the Son of God was a, a special and powerful creature that God had made before time in the universe began. The Son of God was, was like a demigod or, or something powerful and godlike, like a really powerful angel, but still less than what God is. He believed and taught this, and he actually had quite a few others in the church who agreed with him, and he had many more who, even if they didn't agree with him, they still thought his beliefs should be accepted in the church, and, and Athanasius was not having any of it. Athanasius refused to accommodate Arianism in the life of the church. Athanasius fought against this teaching and, and its presence in the church his entire life. Athanasius was convinced and convicted over this of that he once, uh, what, what, he want, what he once wrote is that the Jesus that I know is my redeemer cannot be less than God. He was convinced of this. He was willing to give his life for this truth. And his life, because of this fight, it's like something out of a movie in some ways. His opponents, they hated him, they mocked him and slandered him, they accused him of crimes, called him names like the, the black midget. Uh, he, was, he was obviously, he was black, uh, being a, a man from Alexandria, Egypt there. Uh, he was uh, apparently very short too. 
Some depictions of him then, and, and some even still today, portray Athanasius as being something like a violent mobster in his fight against Arius and his cohorts. Athanasius was, was exiled from Alexandria and from the church five times throughout his life. He was exiled on charges of violence and sacrilege, on charges of cutting off grain supplies to parts of Egypt, on charges of murder and sorcery even. I'm glad to say I, th- I think only one or two of those charges was actually true. Uh, I'll leave it to your studies in church history to determine which charges were legitimate. I just encourage you to check it out. It's a fascinating story. But in all reality, Athanasius suffered exile and hardship and slander and arrest and threats against his life all his life long, all because he was convinced and convicted of this fact that Jesus is truly God as well as being truly man. As you know, we're, we're working our way through a series titled, Let Us Hold Fast, a phrase taken from Hebrews 4.14 and 10.23, where we're exhorted to hold fast to our confession of faith, to hold fast to biblical teaching and theology, to hold fast to the truth. And, and this series was initially planned in response to the State of Theology report released by Ligonier and Lifeway Research late last year. Again, the report was based on a survey of theological statements uh, wherein the, the general population of the United States, as well as smaller subcultures therein, responded to either in agreement or disagreement. And many of the answers to, to these statements by those professing to be evangelical Christians cause concern for your elders here. And many of the responses of those in churches like ours across the United States, many of the responses of those who claim to be gospel Christians, that's what evangelical means, gospel, gospel Christians, were completely opposed and antithetical to the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Statement six of that survey stated this, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. In other words, Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, sharing in the same being and essence of the Father. No, Jesus is a creature. And to this, 5% responded that they weren't sure. 3% responded that they somewhat agreed. And 70% responded that they strongly agreed. Likewise, statement 7 related to this stated, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And to this, 3% said they weren't sure, 5% somewhat agreed, and 38% said they strongly agreed. Friends, it seems that there is a great deal of confusion over this most central matter to our faith. It seems that there is a great deal of confusion over this this all-important truth. It seems that there is a great deal of confusion over who Jesus Christ is. And rather than confusion, the elders want here for you and for us together collectively, we want clarity and conviction about Jesus and who he is and what he is. And so the first and primary question we're going to ask this morning is this, is Jesus God? Is Jesus true God? Is he truly God? And of course, last week we 
We sought to make the case for the Bible being our true and trustworthy and reliable and credible guide on matters as such as such such as this. And so we're primarily interested in what the Bible has to say about this matter. So our text this morning, we're going to be looking at John 1, 1 through 5. Actually, it's probably more like 1 through 3. Uh, but, but these verses are, are found in what we call the prologue to John's gospel. The, the fourth gospel was written by the apostle John, an eyewitness to the life, ministry, miracles, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's, he's not to be confused with John the Baptist, who he references in the prologue, uh, but the, the John who wrote this letter is the Apostle John. And as such, he was sent out by Jesus to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the world. And this book, John's gospel, was written in concert with those efforts. So John starts his gospel a little bit differently than the other three do. Uh, you know, the, the, he, he starts not like Matthew or Luke with a uh, the genealogy or birth narratives. He doesn't start like Mark, who we saw, uh, you know, uh, in our sermon series that we just finished recently with like a, a speedy on-ramp into the ministry of Jesus. John starts his gospel with something of a lengthier, just eloquent prologue that begins in eternity past and does so to emphasize particularly the divine and eternal nature of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, as we're looking at John 1, we're, we're going to be looking at just verses 1 to 3 here, but we're going to go and read the whole of the prologue, verses 1 through 18 here. And as we do so, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with relish to the word of our God, as it's written by John about Jesus, and inspired by the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from him, or for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit? Holy Spirit, would you exalt Jesus this morning? Would you inform our minds? Would you impress the beauty of Jesus upon our hearts? Would you encourage and edify your people? All for the glory and the sake of Christ's name. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. And be seated. Again, so the, the primary question that we are asking this morning is this. Is Jesus God? Is he true God? Is he truly God? And John wants to answer this question with abundant clarity. He begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word. Now, you'll recognize there the very words with which the whole Bible begins. Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before creation was created, before the universe was spoken into existence, there was the creator being self-existent, being eternal. God was there before creation. But, John tells us, so was the word. Now, who's the word? The, the, the Word of God here is the Son of God, the one who took on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. We know John is writing about Jesus here because he gives this express purpose in his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31, where he says that he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. John 1, 14, he identifies the word as the Son, and he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, as we confessed earlier. Now, why does John call him the word here? So much ink has been spilled in trying to answer this question, and it's It's incredibly nuanced and sophisticated and and beyond our ability to sufficiently explore here this morning. But suffice it to say, the Son of God is called the Word here because Jesus, the Son of God, is the perfect revelation of the Father. There's a lot of Old Testament backstory to this. But this language of of the Word of God is associated with with God's own self-disclosure throughout the Old Testament. It's related to God's own self-disclosure in relation to creation and in written revelation and in redemption throughout the Old Testament. And John picks up on this Old Testament theme here because he wants us to see that this person he's writing about is the perfect self-disclosure and revelation of God. The person of Jesus, the Son of God, is the perfect self-disclosure of God. He is the perfect revelation of God. So that if you want to know what God is like and who God is, what you must do is look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He is the Word. 
That's why Jesus says of himself in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is perfect theology. In a word, he is the word. And then John goes on to say about the word that in the beginning and thus before the beginning, the word was with God. St. Augustine, who's another early African pastor, once wrote that when people ask the question, what, what, what was God doing in eternity past? He answers by saying, creating hell for those who pry into mysteries. But here, John is giving us something of a glimpse into the mystery. He's giving us something of a glimpse into what was happening in eternity past. In eternity past, there was a delighted, glorious relationship between the Word and God. This statement implies something of a distinction between God the Father and the Word, right? Because the Word was here with God. So God is obviously in reference to the Father here, and and, and the Word being with Him implies some sort of distinction between the Father and the Word, and that word translated as with, it's, it's theologically loaded. It implies a kind of relational presence. God and the Word in eternity past were there with one another in this glorious, perfect, delighted relationship. Jesus speaks of this in John 17, 5. He prays to the Father there, and he refers to this glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? We just finished our time in Mark just a few weeks ago. Jesus' baptism in Mark 1.11. What happened when Jesus went down into the waters of baptism and came back out? The Father spoke over Jesus saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. I am delighted in you. I take pleasure in you. This glorious, delighted, pleasure-filled, eternally satisfying relationship was all going on in eternity past between the Father and the Word. Because in eternity past, before the creation of the universe, the Word was with God. The Word in, in, in this is clearly a person distinct from the Father, and yet he has also been with the Father in eternity past. John will still go on to tell us in verse 1 here that his word was not just with God, but also that the word was God. So you can see here, there's a distinction between God the Father and the word, but the word is, is God? The word is, he was God? Everything that God is, the word is, John is telling us. He's saying everything that can be said about God can also be said about the Word. Is God sovereign? So is the Word, because He's God. Is God all-knowing? So is the Word. Is God omnipresent? So is the Word. Just as in God, so the Word can be found wisdom and truth and knowledge and power and holiness and justice and perfection, because the Word is God. So how do we explain this? We know from the entirety of the biblical canon that there are not multiple gods. There's only one God. The creed of Israel, the Shema, Deuteronomy 
says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 42, 21, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, there are no other gods besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. There's only one God. There are not, there's not more than one God. But John tells us here that the Father is God, and the Word who was with God is in some way distinct from God is also God. So you can see here something of the doctrine of the Trinity being progressively revealed, can't you? There is but one true and living God, and yet there's a distinction of persons within this one God. The Father and the Son, or the Word, are both seen here. Of course, we, we, we must also confess the Holy Spirit as being God. The, these three are revealed to us in the Scriptures as being God. And yet, they're all revealed to us as being one and the same God. That's why we baptize. And the words that Jesus taught us to baptize with in Matthew 28, in the name, there's only one name, in the name of, in the one singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one name, and then there's three persons mentioned there. Because they're one and the same true God. The Father's God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they're one God. The church's confession of faith, the abstract of principles, puts it this way. It says that God is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. There's one God, one being, one essence, one nature, no division. And yet there are three with distinct personal attributes, the Father, the Word, the Spirit. John is showing us something of this truth in John 1.1 as he writes, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So is Jesus God. John says, yes, he's the Word. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. And as such, he has been with the Father in glorious delight for all eternity past. He is one with the Father in deity. In addition to Jesus being true man, he is true God. Now let's get to the specific questions asked in the State of Theology report. Jesus is God. So how should we then respond to the question of whether or not Jesus is a creature? Whether or not Jesus was made or created? Was, was Jesus the first and greatest being created by God, as the, the statement puts it? Now that's something similar to what Arius believed and taught. It's something similar to what quite a few in the church in the third and fourth centuries believed. Some of them believed that Jesus was godlike. Some of them believed that Jesus was like a demigod, a lowercase g god, like Hercules or something. And thus they didn't believe him to be of the same essence, the same being, the same nature as God the Father. And thus they did not believe him to be eternal. They believed he was made, he was created, he was a creature. There's another sizable group that believes and teaches this still today called Jehovah's Witnesses. You likely run into them. If you haven't, you, you very well might run into them here in our very own city. They might knock on your door or sit outside the library with some pamphlets or on the sidewalk in the Oregon district with some signs, hand out little pamphlets, try to, try, try to strike up conversation and whatnot. And they're usually perfectly polite and, and pleasant, and we should be in return. 
They identify themselves as being Christians. And yet, they believe a number of doctrines and, 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 and beliefs that are antithetical to what we as Christians believe. For one, they believe, they believe that Jesus was created by God as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed, and that Jesus is Michael come to us in human flesh. In their beliefs, Jesus is this kind of lesser, though still mighty, lowercase g God, and apparently close to three-fourths of those professing to be evangelicals believe something close to that as well. Now, isn't it clear in John's words here that this is, it's just not what the Bible teaches. The, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God. John 1 teaches it. The rest of, of John's gospel contains more than several verses that clearly teach it. Jesus is often claiming it for himself. You look at the seven, uh, Jesus' seven I am statements throughout John's gospel, wherein Jesus clearly identifies himself as the I am, the Yahweh of Exodus 3. Words of the institution for baptism teach it. In Matthew 28, as we just saw. This, this truth is clearly found in the other gospels. We saw it in Mark recently. We see it in Acts, Paul's writings, John's epistles, and Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 1 and 2 so clearly. We see it in Revelation. It's found in the promises about Jesus in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 110 and Isaiah 9. It's just a plain fact. The Bible clearly claims that Jesus is God, and God is not a creature. God has not been made by someone else. John seeks to make abundantly clear about Jesus here. In verses 1 to 2, look at what it says. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning, when, when everything was made, the word was there. And, and John says, all things. He wants, he wants to make this so clear that he says not just all things, but everything that has been made. And nothing that has been made was not made except for by the word. All of it has been made through the word. Right? Everything that God does, he does through his son. It's just Jesus accomplished our salvation through his work and medi mediation. So God created in the beginning through the work and mediation of his son. And, 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 and notice here, the two categories under which everything that exists falls. There's the category of everything that has been made, everything that has been created. There's the created category. And then there's the category of that which made everything that has been made. That's the category of creator. There's only two categories here. That which has been made and that which made everything that has been made. And if these are the two categories, which one does the word fall into? Is the word part of the category of that which has been made? John says, no. The word is under the category of that which made all that was made. The word is not a creature. No, the word is the creator. He's no creature. He's the one, rather, at whose feet we should fall down and worship as the creator. Jesus is no creature. John says he is the creator. How about Jesus being a teacher? Of course, it's obvious that Jesus was a teacher. He was a preacher. Mark 1.38, Jesus says, of the purpose of his coming, that it was to go out and preach. 
Many of his sermons recorded for us in the Gospels. Matthew 7, people praise him as one who taught with authority, not as the scribes. R.C. Sproul once said about Jesus that God only had one son and he made him a preacher. Jesus was undoubtedly a teacher. The question is, is that all that he was? Was Jesus, as Statement 7 of the State of Theology report put it, a great teacher but not God? The teaching of Jesus itself would, would seem to contradict a statement such as this. Jesus claimed for himself that he was far more than a mere teacher. John 6.35, Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. And he says that whoever comes to him in faith and trust will find their souls eternally satisfied in him. John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, whoever follows him will have the light of life. John 10, 7, Jesus says, I am the door. Claiming that anyone who would enter into the kingdom and realm of salvation must enter through him. He says of himself, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus clearly saw himself as being far more than a mere teacher, even a great teacher. He saw and presented himself as being the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. He saw and presented himself as being nothing less than God come in human vesture for the salvation of his own. Now, if he's claimed all that for himself, whatever else he is, he, he can't merely be a great teacher. As John Stott once said, the claims are there. They do not themselves constitute evidence of deity. Claims may have been false, but some explanation of them must be found. We cannot any longer regard Jesus as simply a great teacher if he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, namely himself. You might be familiar with what C.S. Lewis likewise said of this reality. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him for a demon or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to simply not possible for Jesus to be merely a great human teacher. So what of it? Is, is he a lunatic, a demon, a madman, as Lewis puts it here? Was he a, a, a megalomaniac on par with the likes of Hitler or Napoleon? Was he a madman in that sense, so delusionally self-obsessed so as to claim to be God? Well, look at the evidence. Look, look. Look at the Gospels. Look at the character of Jesus, the conduct of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. Look at the way he treated those around him. If you keep reading John's Gospel, which I would encourage you to do so, you won't see signs of megalomania, self-delusion. Man self-obsessed. You'll see a man of deep compassion and forgiveness and humility. A man of love. Just one example of this, all of Jesus' disciples. 
had abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need when he was going to the cross, being flogged and crucified and killed. And yet, what does he do when he comes upon them in John 20, 19? What does he say to those cowardly, abandoning, betraying disciples? He says, peace. Peace be with you. Does that sound like a delusional, self-obsessed man? And one of Jesus' most trusted friends, Peter, completely abandoned Jesus in John 18 and denied him. What does Jesus do when he finds Peter in John 21? He graciously, kindly, gently absolves him and restores him. Does that sound like a delusionally self-obsessed man to you? Does that sound like someone with baseless delusions of grandeur? Or now, if Jesus is not a madman, is he a bad man, a con man, a liar? Did he deliberately set out to fool people and deceive people into thinking he was God while all along he knew himself to be a mere man? Again, this just doesn't fit with the character of Jesus portrayed in the Gospels. In the Gospels, you don't, we find a man so unselfish, so kind, so patient, so humble, so gracious, so forgiving. And people who promote and maintain lives like that, they do so for very selfish reasons. They're selfish people. All the while, Jesus shows himself to be anything but selfish. Besides, there's, there's no conceivable motive for Jesus' claims to, about himself to be lies. His claims brought him hatred, rejection, misunderstanding, persecution, torture, even death. He would not have endured such sufferings if his claims were all lies. Jesus is not a lunatic. He's not a liar. Of course, there's the the, the question of whether Jesus might be a legend, a myth. Of course, we've addressed that accusation last week and three weeks ago, and so I'm not going to spend time on that this morning. But just trusting, based on what we've seen over the last few weeks, trusting that the Gospels present real and historical accounts of Jesus of Nazareth. There's no way that Jesus would be merely a good man, a good teacher. Likewise, the evidence simply isn't there for him being a madman or a bad man, and that means there's only one conclusion left to us, that Jesus is the God-man. He is a teacher, but he's so much more. Jesus is truly God, the, the one who has come to take on flesh for us and for our salvation. There's one more question we need to ask. And that's, is, is this really that important? Is this really that important? All this talk about Jesus and God and deity and Trinity, is this really all that important for our life and for our eternity? Or is it rather just doctrines and words on a page that don't make a lick of difference in the grand scheme of things? Is this really that important? Yes. Let me tell you why. First, this is personal. This is personal. So I, I, can, I can hear the criticisms of those who think these realities to be unimportant because well, I've heard them before. I, I used to give them years ago. I know that there are some who, who would say about all this that, that, that the most important thing in Christianity is not theology, not beliefs, not doctrines. It's love, that we should, just, we should, love, we should seek to love God and love others. Our creeds are not crucial. Love is. When this, what this criticism fails to understand is that 
our doctrine, our theology, our beliefs are crucial because of our love for God. And Trevin Wax wonderfully captures this reality in his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. And he writes this, that Christianity is not just giving mental assent to a set of propositions, it's giving yourself to a person. For that reason, the statements we make about the identity of God really matter. You see here, friends, that, that in John 1, we're not dealing with an abstract idea, we're dealing with a he, with a him. The word is personal. The word is a person. The, the, the word that we're to love with all of our hearts and souls and mind and strength, he's a person. Therefore, we want to know him and speak about him in ways that are theologically precise and doctrinally clear. We want to do this precisely because we love him. To say we don't care about theology or doctrine while just wanting to love the word It would be like a married person saying, you know, I don't really want to know anything about my spouse. I just want to love my spouse. I just want to love them. That that would be inconceivable. You want to know your spouse and know things about your spouse for the very reason that you love your spouse. And you want to love your spouse all the more. Friends, this is not impersonal. It's not abstract. This is deeply, deeply personal. It's part of why it matters. Second, it matters because this is doxological. This is doxological. That is to say, this has to do with with worship. Okay, doxology, it means worship. Here's the reality. Either Jesus is God and we must therefore worship him, or Jesus is not God and worshiping him is idolatry. There's no other option left to us. Either Jesus is God and therefore we must worship him, or he's not God and we must not worship him. As we sang earlier, Christ to thee with God the Father and whole, O Holy Ghost to thee. Him and chant and great thanksgiving and unending praises be honor and glory and dominion and eternal victory evermore. Either that is entirely appropriate and fitting because Jesus is the God man or it's utter blasphemy. Yet the scriptures, they, they present Jesus, worship of Jesus as being entirely appropriate. Christ is worshiped by his disciples, Matthew 28, 17. Christ is worshiped by John the Apostle in Revelation 1, 17. He's worshiped and praised along with the Father by the masses in Revelation 5, 12, and 13. And, and he will be for all of eternity by a people from every nation and tribe and tongue of the earth, Daniel 7, 14 tells us. Jesus is God. And he ought to be worshipped. This is doxological. And third, it matters because this is salvific. Whether or not Jesus is God makes all the difference as it pertains to our salvation. Emil Bruner, he once rightly wrote of the disciples that once they understand him as the absolute Lord, to whom the full divine sovereignty belongs, did Easter as victory and Good Friday as a saving fact become intelligible. Only when they knew Jesus as the present heavenly Lord did they know themselves to be sharers in the messianic kingdom as men of the new messianic era. You see, without the divinity of Jesus, we can have no confidence that we are truly saved. If Jesus is a a mere man, however remarkable he might be, we can have no confidence that he is the true and living Savior. That he has utterly secured our salvation because a, a mere human cannot make good on such promises. He cannot be fully trusted to make good on such promises. 
However, if Jesus is God, then, then nothing is impossible to him. Nothing is outside the realm of his ability. Only if Jesus is God can, can he be the life and the light of men, as John 1, 4, and 5 puts it. Only if Jesus is God can he give, only if he's the son of God, can he give us the right to become children of God ourselves, as John 1, 12 puts it. Only if he is truly God can he truly save. This is all important because it's salvific. And lastly, it's important because this is satisfying. This is satisfying. Only if Jesus is God can he truly be the all-satisfying Savior that he claimed himself to be. Only if he is God can he be that bread of life that our souls so need and desire. Only if he's God, can he be the good shepherd of our souls that we so long for to lead us into places of rest and restoration? St. Augustine once wrote about God, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our, heart, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless. We're, we're restless. We're unsatisfied. We're not at peace. We're not at rest. We're not whole until... We find and know the one by whom and for whom we have been made. And John is telling us here, the word is the one. He's the one in whom our restless hearts can find rest. He's the one in whom we can find the satisfaction our souls so desire. He's the one by whom and for whom we have been made. Jeremiah Burroughs was a, a Puritan who wrote a book called the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And then he seeks to make this very point based on, on Paul's claim in Philippians 4 to have found the secret to being content in life. And the secret is finding ultimate and final satisfaction in Christ alone. At one point, Burroughs is encouraging people to contentment by, by showing them that Christ is so beautiful and all satisfying beyond anything else, beyond all imagination. He says this, Christ is all in all, even in the esteem of the Father himself. He was the delight of the Father from all eternity and the Father undertook infinite contentment in him. Haven't we seen that? We saw that the word was with God, that he had this glory with the Father before the universe began, that before the universe began, the Father was delighting in the Son and all eternity passed. Didn't we see this? Burroughs says he was the delight of the Father from all eternity. And the Father took, undertook infinite contentment in him. God the Father is infinitely satisfied in Christ. He is all in all to him. Surely, Burroughs argues, if Christ is an object for the satisfaction of the Father, much more then is he an object sufficient for the satisfaction of any soul. The Word, I'm telling you, the Word is more than sufficient for the satisfaction of your soul. He is more than sufficient 
And he is graciously delighted to condescend to us so that our hearts, our souls might find their satisfaction in him. He has come to live the life that we should have lived. And having lived it, he has come to die the death that we deserve to die for our sins. He did that because there was separation between the satisfaction of our souls and us. And he died to absolve us of our sins and remove our sins from us so that we could know him in whom our souls are satisfied. And he rose again on the third day and he ascended into heaven where he now stands with arms wide open saying, come. Come find your satisfaction in me. I am the one by whom and for whom you have been made, friends. He gives that invitation to all who would come to him in true faith and repentance this morning. Come to Jesus and find the satisfaction of your soul in the one for whom you have been made. He is the only object sufficient for the satisfaction of our souls. Friends, that's why this is so crucially important. That's why we need to be clear and convicted over who Jesus is. That's why this matters so immensely. Who he is as a person matters so immensely. This is personal. This is doxological. We we, we must worship him. We must trust in him as the Savior. And as we do, we will find that he is satisfying, just as he promises. As we find our hearts, soul, and souls rest and contentment and satisfaction in him. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the word to become flesh and dwell among us so that we might know you, so that we might know him, so that we might have our souls satisfied in him. We pray that we would experience something of that satisfaction as we come to the table this morning and commune with the risen Christ by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, meet with us. Satisfy our souls in you, as you have promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.